Due to the nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of explosions, terrorist events, murder, animal cruelty, and violence. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Wednesday, April 17th, 2013. A young computer programmer sat hunched over an array of monitors. Empty cans of energy drinks littered her desk. She had been up for over 24 hours, but unlike most nights, she wasn't coding a new app. Tonight, she was tracking down a killer. She scoured thousands of photos and videos, blurry action shots of runners, tourist selfies, surveillance footage. Suddenly, something caught her eye. It was a picture of two young men, one with a backpack, the other with a duffel bag on his shoulder. They seemed to be whispering to each other, maybe even conspiring. That had to be them. She couldn't believe it. She had found the Boston Marathon bombers. With a couple of clicks of her mouse, she saved the image, circled the suspicious men in red, and posted it on a message board. Then she waited breathlessly as the responses began to flood in. Within hours, the photo was all over social media, then the front page of newspapers. But there was one big problem. The pair in the photo were not the bombers. They were innocent men, and now they had targets on their backs. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And I'm Carter Roy. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Boston Marathon bombing. On April 15, 2013, two homemade bombs detonated near the finish line of the famous race, killing three spectators and injuring over 200. Three days later, after a massive manhunt, the alleged bombers were in custody. One alive, one dead. Last time, we followed a minute-by-minute chronicle of the tragedy and its aftermath. Today, we're doing things a little differently. Instead of examining three conspiracy theories, we're doing a deep dive into a dangerous aspect of mass casualty events, misinformation and crowdsourced investigations, sometimes referred to as digilantism, and the dangerous rumors it can spawn. After that, we'll discuss one big conspiracy theory about the tragedy, that law enforcement could have prevented it because the suspects were on their radar before the marathon began. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. The Boston Marathon bombing was one of the worst terrorist attacks on American soil since 9-11, though sadly not the deadliest. The bombs claimed three lives, Crystal Campbell, Lindsay Liu, and Martin Richard. Unfortunately, other tragedies had even greater death tolls. In 2009, a terrorist shot and killed 13 people at Fort Hood in Texas. In 2015, two extremists murdered 14 at a company Christmas party in San Bernardino, California. But psychologically and emotionally, what happened in Boston may have been more devastating for the country. The attacks struck at the heart of an event that symbolized both patriotism and athleticism. What's worse, as we learned in part one, the race attracted close to half a million spectators. So the victims ranged from children and families to college students and married couples. According to one study, 11% of children who attended the race suffered from PTSD six months after the bombings, and a significant number of adults did as well. And then there's the physical injuries. Newlyweds Jessica Kinski and Patrick Downs were among several who lost a body part. There were also other kinds of victims. Innocent bystanders, far from the bomb blasts, but hit by a different type of shrapnel, misinformation. Rumors, mistakes, 
and misinformation tend to surface after any emergency or tragedy. People are scared, emotional, adrenaline is pumping, the public is desperate for information. When there aren't clear answers, people tend to fill in the blanks, make assumptions, and jump to conclusions. And we don't just mean civilians. Even law enforcement officers fail to avoid these pitfalls. We saw a similar phenomenon in our recent episodes about the Hillsborough disaster in England, and the Boston Marathon wasn't so different. In the months after the bombings, a joint task force of Boston police and the FBI put together an after-action report that analyzed what they got right and what they got wrong. It highlighted several mistakes, most stemming from misinformation. On April 15th, just minutes after the bombs, the Boston Fire Department received reports of an explosion at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library. In the chaos of the moment, officials assumed it was connected to the tragedy at the marathon, but that turned out to be a minor fire likely caused by a discarded cigarette. Less than an hour later, police in Boston evacuated ambulances and medical personnel from the explosion site because of reports of another possible bomb. But it turned out to be a false alarm. Those were just two mistakes made by law enforcement, so it should be no surprise that media outlets didn't get everything right either. Hours after the bombing on MSNBC, Chris Matthews speculated the attack was an act of domestic terrorism. He wondered if the bomber's message revolved around anti-taxation or anti-big government. On CNN, John King told viewers that authorities were looking for quote, a dark-skinned man. The problem was, at the time, there was zero evidence about the suspects or their appearance. And that wasn't even the worst example of misinformation. At 4.28 p.m., less than two hours after the bombing, the New York Post declared that a Saudi Arabian national who suffered shrapnel wounds was, quote, under guard. The report made it sound like the police had captured the bomber, except the young man wasn't a suspect. He was a witness, a victim of the bombing. Shortly after the Post's report, the Boston police denied the story. A police spokesperson told Talking Point's memo, quote, Honestly, I don't know where they're getting their information from, but it didn't come from us. After the story, there were demands for the Post to issue an apology to the man. While they cleared his name in reporting the following day, the original story was never corrected, and it doesn't appear they ever publicly apologized to him. Either way, this illustrates an important point. Misreporting and misinformation can lead to dangerous situations. It can put innocent lives at risk especially in the aftermath of emotionally charged calamities. In this case, it may be unfair to single out the Post. As we've seen, they weren't the only entity to make mistakes. They did, however, publish misinformation about the bombing more than once. But the next time, the details came from a new, more dangerous source, Digilantes. Coming up, a young man is falsely accused of the bombing, 
and ends up dead. Listeners, we want to take a moment to tell you about something very special ParCast is doing to commemorate Earth Day. It's a month-long event called Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, featuring new episodes across the entire network. On Unexplained Mysteries, examine some of the greatest advancements and detriments facing our environment and population today. On Serial Killers, crack open the case of activist-turned-murderer Ira Einhorn, a.k.a. the Unicorn Killer. And coming up on Conspiracy Theories, comb through the suspicious circumstances surrounding the death of chemical technician-turned-whistleblower Karen Silkwood. Starting next week, catch these episodes and more all month long. Just look for the dark green Earth Crimes and Conspiracies artwork and listen for free only on Spotify. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. Two hours after the Boston Marathon bombing, the New York Post declared a Saudi Arabian national who suffered shrapnel wounds was, quote, under guard. They were wrong. The man wasn't involved. He was in the hospital being treated for his wounds. And as we said, it wasn't the last time the Post would make a mistake in the aftermath of the marathon bombing. Let's dial back the clock a few hours to noon before the bombs exploded. The sun was shining. Runners hit their stride. Spectators enjoyed the race. Amidst the crowd were two young men. One was a 16-year-old Moroccan-American student named Salah Eden Baroum, an avid runner himself. His dream was to run in the Olympics. The other was his friend, 24-year-old Yassine Zaimi, a Moroccan-American track coach. The two watched the elite runners cross the finish line, and then they returned home. About two hours later, the bombs exploded. Baroum and Zaimi were likely stunned. They had been at the race. If they had lingered, perhaps they could have been injured or killed. They'd only narrowly escaped the tragedy. Little did they know, they were about to be dragged back into it. Two days after the bombing on Wednesday, April 17th, the young men learned that a photo of them was being circulated on social media and online message boards. Digilantes thought they were the bombers. Let's take a second to unpack the notion of digilantes. The term is a mashup of the words digital and vigilantes and refers to online crime fighters who take matters into their own hands. According to a study in the British Journal of Criminology, one of the first large-scale instances of digilantism occurred in China in 2006. Online vigilantes tracked down a woman who appeared to stomp a kitten to death in a video. Operating in a hive mind-like team, thousands of people analyzed the footage, eventually matching the background to a remote area of China. After that, 
The group was able to pinpoint her name and address, which they posted online. The woman was eventually fired from her job. It's unclear whether she faced criminal charges, but the story ushered in a new era of cyber crime fighting. Digilantes follow several techniques. The most common is doxing or releasing someone's personal details online. Then there's a massive digital manhunt during the hunt for the Chinese kitten killer. This was referred to as the human flesh search engine. Digilantes also use traditional hacking techniques like denial of service or DOS attacks in which vigilantes crash a website to punish a company or entity. In the case of the Boston Marathon bombing, vigilantes went with the human flesh search engine approach. Thousands of cyber vigilantes examined every detail of video footage and photos from the race, hoping to identify the bombers. That's how they happened to zero in on Barum and Zaini. For Barum, the accusation was likely a slap in the face. In a later interview with the Daily Mail, he said, quote, I'm not a terrorist. I was just watching the marathon. I was terrified. I've never been in trouble and I feared for my security. That's likely because for all they knew, vigilantes were hunting them down. Perhaps they'd show up at their homes. Maybe their names and addresses would be posted online. Unfortunately, things were going to get much worse than that. On Thursday, April 18th, their photo jumped from social media to the front page of a national newspaper, the New York Post. The headline read, Bagmen, Fed Seek This Duo Pictured at Boston Marathon. Apparently, the Post hadn't learned from Monday's dubious reporting about this Saudi Arabian national. According to later reporting, Zaimi saw the newspaper when he arrived at work. He was likely the first of the two to see it. He immediately started shaking, his mouth went dry, and he felt like he was having a panic attack. Imagine walking into your workplace, seeing your face on the front page of the newspaper with a headline alleging you're a terrorist. You'd probably feel the weight of the world crashing in on you. Barum, on the other hand, learned of the headlines when he returned home from a track meet, and there were news crews loitering in front of his house. Later that day, Barum and Zaimi went to police stations to clear their names. According to his interview with the Daily Mail, Barum walked into a Massachusetts state police office and told an officer the FBI may be looking for him. The police didn't know what to make of it. Supposedly, they didn't even take him into an interrogation room. They made a couple of phone calls and told him he was free to go. Ironically, only a few hours later, law enforcement released photos of the Tsarnaev brothers. Suddenly, vigilantes and the media forgot about Barum and Zaimi. But the damage was done. Two months later, in June 2013, Barum and Zaimi filed a libel lawsuit against the New York Post and five of its journalists. They claimed their story inflicted emotional distress and subjected them to forms of hatred. The Post defended its reporting. According to them, they didn't say Barum and Zaimi were actually suspects, only that the FBI was seeking them. 
Either way, they settled the case out of court for an undisclosed amount of money. There was no recourse against the vigilantes that misidentified the two young men as suspects. And they weren't the only innocent people targeted by cyber sleuths in the days after the bombing. There was another case, and in this one, the victim's family was left to pick up the pieces. In March 2013, a month before the marathon, a 20-year-old Brown University student named Sunil Tripathi went missing. According to NPR, his family turned to social media sites to spread the word and hopefully track him down. They even created a Facebook page dedicated to the search, posting family photos and pleas for him to come home. See, Tripathi suffered from depression and his family was concerned he might be in danger. According to NPR, some news outlets picked up his story, but weeks passed with no luck. The Tripathi family was forgotten about. Then on April 15th, Sunil's sister Sangeeta and brother Ravi traveled to Massachusetts. They went to the Boston Marathon to cheer on a friend who was helping with Tripathi's search. At 2.49 p.m., they were only a few miles from the bombs when they went off. NPR quoted Sangeeta as saying, quote, We were right at the spot where they stopped the rest of the runners. We were just all so shaken. And it just felt like tragedy on top of tragedy on top of tragedy for so many people. In the days that followed, the Tripathi family was likely glued to their television along with most of the country, watching the news unfold, hoping that police would catch the bombers. Then on Thursday, April 18th, the FBI released photos of the suspects. That's when things went from bad to worse. Shortly after the FBI photos went public, one of Sunil's former classmates posted a controversial tweet stating that one of the suspects looked like Sunil. That tweet caught the attention of the online community Reddit, which included vigilantes. Within hours, cyber sleuths compared Sunil's photo to those of the bombers, superimposing his face on the grainy images. To them, he looked like a match. After that, the family's Facebook page was inundated with hate messages. Many accused Sunil of being a terrorist. Just like with Baroom and Zaimi, the story exploded. Soon, news trucks arrived outside the Tripathi home and journalists knocked on their door. According to NPR, between 3 and 4 a.m. on April 19th, Songita received 58 calls from the media. But only a few hours later, at 7 a.m., the FBI released the names of the actual suspects, Tamerlan and Jokar Sarnayev. All of a sudden, the Tripathi's phones went silent. Calls and text messages stopped. Sunil was no longer a suspect. Of course, he never was. But it was only then that the vigilantes and traditional journalists realized it. In just one week, the Tripathis learned what happened to Sunil. 
His body was found in a river near Providence, Rhode Island. Apparently, he died by suicide when he first went missing one month before the marathon. It's worth considering, though, if Sunil had been alive, the scandal might have pushed the young man further into depression. Unlike Barum and Zaimi, the Tripathi family didn't sue the newspapers. Perhaps they just wanted to put the tragedy behind them, and there was little that could be done about the cyber vigilantes responsible. That's the thing about vigilantism. When the mob crosses the line, it's nearly impossible to hold anyone accountable. There are too many people to track down, and since they're all online, most are hidden behind their usernames and avatars. Traditional media was quick to point out these issues. The Atlantic published an article entitled, Hey Reddit, Enough Boston Bombing Vigilantism. The piece went on to say, quote, Investigating bombings is just not a job for the crowd, even if technology makes such collaboration possible. We have a legal system for a reason. But since the marathon, vigilantism has only become more common, possibly due to its success in cracking other cases. In 2017, cyber sleuths tracked down a man in the San Francisco Bay Area who assaulted people with a metal bicycle lock. Digilantes connected him with a social media profile and turned the information over to authorities. After the bike lock case, online vigilantes also figured prominently in several Netflix documentaries, like 2019's Don't F With Cats and 2022's The Most Hated Man on the Internet. Still, even if vigilantes learned a valuable lesson during the marathon investigation, they'll never be able to repair the damage caused to the Tripathis or Salah Eden Barum. And it's possible that it could have all been avoided. Not just the vigilante investigation, but the bombing itself. This brings us to our one and only conspiracy theory for this episode. The theory that authorities could have prevented the bombings because they had plenty of evidence to stop the Tsarnaev brothers before they struck. Coming up, a gruesome triple homicide and Russian secret intelligence. Now, back to the story. Let's take a second and wind back the clocks again, this time to September 2011, two years before the marathon bombings, a simpler time in Boston. On September 11th, three young men gathered to watch a football game. There was Brendan Mess, a 25-year-old mixed martial arts fighter and trainer. The apartment, an old clabbered colonial, was his. There was also Eric Weissman, a 31-year-old bodybuilder. And Raphael Tekken, a 37-year-old personal trainer. All three were strong, physically fit guys who spent hours at the gym every week. When they weren't at the gym, they allegedly dabbled in the sale of marijuana. But that night at 8.54 p.m., their focus was on the football game, the New York Jets versus the Dallas Cowboys. In the middle of the game, the guys allegedly ordered delivery from a local Italian restaurant. 
20 minutes later, when the delivery person arrived, there was no answer at the door. The woman tried calling Eric Weissman's cell phone, but he didn't pick up. The next day, the men's bodies were discovered in the house, bound, beaten, with their throats slit. In a report by ABC News, Jerry Leone, a former Boston-area district attorney, called the crime scene graphic. But the attack's gruesome nature wasn't the only thing that perplexed investigators. In a strange twist, the bloody bodies were sprinkled with seven pounds of marijuana. At first glance, the scene might have looked like a drug robbery gone bad, but investigators found $5,000 in cash at the scene. Even more baffling, according to ABC News, neighbors said they didn't hear a struggle and there were no signs of forced entry. It all seemed suspicious. That's what others thought too. A friend of Brendan Mess, Scott Wood, told ABC News that he suspected the killer or killers had to be friends with Mess, which allowed them to gain entry into the house peacefully. Friends of the victims had a suspect in mind, an associate of Brendan Mess, a young Chechen man and an accomplished fighter, Tamerlan Tsarnaev. Apparently, Tsarnaev and Mess were former roommates and training partners at a nearby gym. Tamerlan frequently hung out with Brendan, Eric, and Raphael. And yet, Tamerlan didn't attend their funerals. Believe it or not, Tamerlan was never questioned by police or the local DA's office. Friends of the victims claimed the police investigation was sloppy and erratic. During an interview, Susan Zalkind, a friend of Eric Weissman, told Boston.com that police didn't set up a tip line. They also didn't follow up on leads from the public, and the people that did come forward were intimidated or harassed. With allegations like that against the investigation, it's no surprise the case went cold until the Boston Marathon two years later. When the FBI revealed Tamerlan Sarnayev's face as one of the bombing suspects, Friends and family of the three friends remembered him. Unfortunately, police didn't get a chance to question Sarnayev about those murders because he was dead. As we heard in part one, Tamerlan was shot by police and his younger brother, Jokar, allegedly ran him over while fleeing their shootout with law enforcement. Regardless, after the bombing, the police and FBI wanted to know everything about the Sarnayev brothers, where they ate, where they slept, and who their friends and associates were. The extra scrutiny on Tamerlan may have dredged up rumors about his involvement in the unsolved triple homicide from two years prior. It wasn't until about a month after the bombing that the FBI questioned one of Tamerlan's buddies, a 27-year-old Chechen accomplished fighter named Ibrahim Todeshev about the murders. According to a report from the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, it went down like this. On May 21, 2013, one FBI agent and two Massachusetts state troopers flew to Orlando, Florida to grill Todeshev about the triple murder. 
They arrived at the man's apartment at 7.30 p.m. and talked for hours. About what? We're not exactly sure. Around 10.25 p.m., Todeshev waived his right to have an attorney present for any questioning. After that, he allegedly confessed to killing Brendan Mess, Eric Weissman, and Raphael Tekken, with none other than Tamerlan Tsarnaev. In a later search warrant affidavit, Todeshev claimed that he and Tamerlan agreed to rob the victims, but then supposedly Tamerlan changed the plan and decided they should eliminate any witnesses. According to Slate.com, throughout Todeshev's interrogation, one of the Massachusetts state troopers was updating an assistant district attorney back home over text messages. For most of the night, his texts were positive, even celebratory. He wrote, Okay, he's writing a statement now in his apartment. Minutes later, he wrote, Who's your daddy? And getting confession as we speak. But shortly after midnight, the trooper's texts turned serious. He even messaged the FBI agent who was in the room with him. Be on guard. He is in a vulnerable position to do something bad. Be on guard now. Not long after, while Todeshev was writing his confession, he allegedly sprang up from his seat. He heaved a coffee table at the nearby FBI agent and charged one of the state troopers. The trooper fumbled with his gun and was unable to protect himself. The FBI agent fired multiple shots at Todeshev. According to the report, an injured Todeshev leaped up and charged at the trooper. That's when the agent fired another three or four more shots, killing Todeshev. When Todeshev's family learned what had happened, they were shocked. According to his mother-in-law, he was a gentle, innocent young man. Todeshev's murder prompted one of Eric Weissman's friends, Susan Zalkind, who we mentioned earlier, to quit her job and investigate the case. She turned it into a documentary series called The Murders Before the Marathon. One of the film's underlying themes is, if police had thoroughly investigated the case, perhaps Tamerlan Zarnayev would have been behind bars and the bombings never would have happened. It's a heartbreaking thought that all the trauma and suffering of the Boston Marathon bombing could have been avoided. But it's also a lot of responsibility to lay at the feet of this one murder investigation. Homicide cases are notoriously difficult to solve. In 2011, at the time of the gruesome killing, there were nearly 200 homicides in Massachusetts. Only about 100 were solved. That's only half. It's impossible to say for sure what would have happened if police had further investigated the triple homicide. It's entirely possible authorities wouldn't have found enough evidence to arrest Tamerlan Sarnayev. And if they had, who knows if he would have stood trial or been put behind bars. But as we said earlier, this conspiracy theory that law enforcement could have stopped the Sarnayev brothers doesn't only hinge on the unsolved triple murder. There was another scenario that could have led to their capture, 
and this one involved Russian intelligence agencies. In March 2011, the FBI received a hot tip from Russian intelligence. A young Chechen man in the Boston area was allegedly radicalized. His name? Tamerlan Sarnayev. The memo speculated that Sarnayev was planning to travel to Russia to join underground groups in Russia's southern republics. The Russians asked for the FBI's help investigating Tsarnaev. A counterterrorism agent at the Boston FBI field office conducted an assessment of Tsarnaev, including drive-bys of the young man's residence, a visit to his former college, and an interview with Tamerlan and his parents. But apparently he didn't uncover anything. In June 2011, the agent determined Tamerlan was not linked to terrorism and closed the case. Five months later, in September 2011, Russia reached out again, this time to the CIA. Perhaps they would take the threat more seriously. Soon after, the CIA sent Tamerlan's name to the National Counterterrorism Center, requesting him to be added to the terrorist watch list. The exact parameters for being added to the list are a closely guarded secret, but in general, U.S. law enforcement reserves it for individuals who, quote, are suspected of having links to terrorism. Fast forward a couple of months later, on January 21st, 2012, Tamerlan Tsarnaev arrived at New York's John F. Kennedy Airport with a ticket to Russia. Despite being on the watch list, Tamerlan was not detained. He was allowed to board his plane headed for Moscow. After that, intelligence agencies lost track of Tamerlan for six months. We can only speculate on his whereabouts during that time, but what we do know is that on July 17, 2012, Tamerlan boarded a plane and returned to the U.S. When he landed in New York, Customs had another opportunity to stop him. But once again, he was waved through. The declassified intelligence briefing revealed that, in retrospect, officials disagreed about how Tamerlan's case was handled. One counterterrorism agent defended the Bureau's process. But an unnamed FBI counterterrorism supervisor wasn't so sure. In his opinion, Tamerlan's travel should have triggered additional interviews at the airport, as well as an alert to Russian intelligence. Perhaps if the FBI had notified the Russians, they could have tracked Tamerlan's movements inside the country and confirmed whether or not he'd met with terrorist groups. An assistant special agent in charge at the Boston Joint Terrorism Task Force reported that if someone had pinged the counterterrorism agent about Tsarnaev's travel, it would have, quote, changed everything. Of course, it's impossible to know if changed everything means Tsarnaev would have been detained and if that would have prevented the marathon bombing. Perhaps another interview would have yielded the same result, Tamerlan may have been cleared again. As they say, hindsight is 2020. But I think this suggests our conspiracy theory 
that law enforcement could have prevented the marathon bombing might hold some weight. Personally, I think they dropped the ball on this one. If federal intelligence agencies in Russia go out of their way to warn you about a potential terrorist, there must be a reason. And I can't believe the police didn't investigate Tamerlan after the triple murder. I agree, especially after hearing that quote from the assistant special agent in charge of the Boston Joint Terrorism Task Force, that if anyone had connected the dots, it would have changed everything. Well, it may not be a consolation for the victims or their families, but the Boston Marathon bombing did change everything about how terrorism was handled in the U.S. In 2018, on the fifth anniversary of the attack, WCVB, a local Boston news station, interviewed Hank Shaw, special agent in charge of the FBI Boston office. According to Agent Shaw, the bombing altered how the FBI and law enforcement handled mass casualty events like the bombing. The FBI collected 10,000 videos and over 100,000 images from the crime scene. At the time, the FBI wasn't prepared to sift through that many photos. Now, they are. Large sporting events like the Boston Marathon are, sadly, more prepared for terrorist events as well, with plans in place in case of bombings or shootings. But the most visible change post-tragedy was likely to the city of Boston itself. It was already a proud city, but what happened at the marathon forged an even stronger bond for its citizens. In the aftermath, many people likely wondered if the race would happen the following year. Once the dust settled, Marathon organizers, spectators, and runners knew that it would, and it would be even bigger. Perhaps former President Barack Obama said it best at a memorial service for the victims. The world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder for the 118th Boston Marathon. Bet on it. And he was right. A year later, in 2014, the Boston Marathon had one of its largest numbers of participants ever, over 35,000. Even some bombing survivors returned to the race, like Jessica Kensky. Even though she couldn't run anymore, she competed in the hand cycle division. Two years later, her husband, Patrick Downs, ran with the aid of prosthetic legs. And in 2022, Henry Richard, who was 10 years old when his brother Martin was killed, ran the marathon in memory of his fallen brother. Perhaps the most enduring legacy of the Boston Marathon rests on the grit and resilience of those affected by the tragedy. Their courage proves that we can rise beyond the hardships imposed by tragedy and that hope lives on. Much like the memory of those who died in the blasts, Martin Richard, Crystal Campbell, and Lingzi Liu are commemorated in two memorials that now sit close to the finish line. They're represented by three stones. They'll watch over the race for years to come because Boston's response to the bombing proved the marathon is more than a race. It's a symbol of resilience 
of our ability to persevere and come together, and that spirit will live on. As President Barack Obama said at the time, bet on it. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We're here on Mondays and Wednesdays with all new episodes. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Adam De Silva, edited by Wendelin Sabroso and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, produced by Joshua Kern, with sound design by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. <laughs>